my area really is Beatles. I'm mostly known as a Beatle uh, author. Right. But I have special, in, and when I was working on my John Lennon biography, I really dove into World War II and got lost <laughs> a lot and really was fascinated by uh, the work I did on Liverpool and the Blitz and how uh, the, the Northerners carry a resentment about how London always wears the Blitz on its sleeve, but actually the majority of bombing was done up north at most of those ports. Mm. And um, it just fit in with this larger uh, sketch of the the Liverpool personality that I was trying to draw. So I don't know. I have a special interest in this, um, but I just loved your book so much. I really wanted to make sure and cover it just to give it more... Um, you know, exposure because uh, when I read a book like this, I just really, uh, I just really want to share it with as many people as possible. So, I listened to another interview of yours. I think it was from Politics and Prose, and they started out a uh, really interesting way. You have a personal story that you tell in connection with this material and how yeah. you came to it, and how you were drawn to this, um, uh, to this stuff. So. Give us a little idea of that, of your personal background and what led you to this to this book. Yeah, so I first, as I write at the end of the book, I really, this is a, it's both a personal and uh, an intellectual question for me, um, this whole issue of World War II. So I, I first came to learn about World War II as my father's war. He was older than the fathers of most of my peers. Um, and his service had been in World War II. He was in the uh, Army Air Corps. He was an air traffic controller. He spent part of his time at a series of stateside bases. And then he ended up in India where he did air traffic control. And he uh, also, they, they would uh, go out and um, lay radio range beacons and things like that. And I used to, because his story was so unusual to me and not that those of my uh, parent, my peers' parents, I would always beg him for stories. And he would always say, he would always answer the same way, who the hell remembers it was a hundred years ago. But he would tell me stories. And then when I came to work at the military academy, I think he, he began to, to tell me more stories. But I first knew that war as his war. And he would, he was a depression era kid. So he worked all the time and he worked at home on Sundays as well. That was his concession to the weekend. He would work at home. But when there was a World War II movie on, we would watch. And this was before the days of on demand, whenever you want, you can watch whatever you want. So whenever we would catch something on TV, he would take time out and we would watch the movie together. And the other connection is a musical connection because he seemed to know the words to every song of a certain era. And that was the big band era. And he grew up listening to this music. He worked after he graduated from high school, he worked at Decca Records um, in the in the storeroom and as a shipping clerk and things like that. And um, so we and we actually have my, my mother and I have some some old precious 78s that I'd like to frame at some point. I think that would yeah. be neat. Um, so he knew all of these songs and from the 30s and, and then the 40s. And so anytime that we would hear something on the radio, he would he knew the words. And uh, so that, that awakened early on a, a love of that era of music for me and then a, a uh -huh. love of jazz from a variety of periods earlier and later. But yeah. um, he, we could all, you could always uh, there was a there was a snatch of a song on the radio. You could always rely on him to supply the words, um, which was wonderful because I can't carry a tune, but he could. <laughs> and uh, so I had a kind of very sort of hazy, gauzy memory of this. Not that he ever romanticized it. Um, I you know th those were he was very young uh, when he joined, and it and you know he he was not in combat, but he certainly saw planes crash and he saw some horrible things as anyone does. Um, and so, you know, this wasn't something that he really romanticized at all, but there was one aspect of the story that stuck with me, which was that, and this was, I think, very true in comparison to later wars. There was a kind of feeling of unanimity. There was a feeling of everyone 
a, a kind of shared responsibility that everyone was at war. And I do think certainly in comparison to Vietnam, that was absolutely the case. But as I grew up and I began to read more and more, the war began to acquire something else as I got older. It, that, that the, the myths, as I call it, of the war grew in intensity. And that really started you know, in, the, in the 50th anniversary celebrations. And so that's really what the book focuses on, the way that certain elemental truths about that war became exaggerated and heightened in the light of later wars. Yeah. And then became so distorted that I think we we now are confronted with a with a problem in remembrance. Yeah, and I'm curious if I, I'm curious. Um, this it's such a human thing to do, right? Um, and I think about this a lot with my subject because the way the Beatles were perceived and experienced in their moment is very different than how we think about them now, right? And so there's always for historians and critics, there's always a tension between you know, what the, the, re, the reality of the story you're trying to tell for the people to whom it was happening. And then there's, there's the distance, distance, you can't erase the distance and you can't erase everyone's experience and, and the reality of the world in the moment that you're trying to tell that story, right? So there's a relationship, there's a way in which the way we interpret history becomes history in, in ways that are, that, you know, it doesn't make sense that it's that it's not obscured or not distorted in some way because our lens our lens changes, right? So how do we cope with that problem as historians, as critics? Is there? I don't know. I've been wrestling with this myself for a while, but you know, it's it's one of the things that I think your book is really great at is um, uncovering the layers of the myth, and you know, and we need the myth, right? The myth, the story is very important, but the way we tell the story to ourselves um, is more reflects more our own values than the values of the people who live the story. I do think, right, that there's a certain point at which the way we remember it becomes as important or in the case of, of a successful myth, more important than what actually happened, at least in sort of guiding and shaping who we are and what our expectations are. And that's when it becomes a problem. And I, I think it's a national problem and also an individual problem. So when we're, we're in the midst of things, we have certain feelings about them. And then when we reflect years later, we become, I think it's just human nature, nostalgic perhaps. Um, we think that we responded in a particular way in the midst of things when we really probably didn't have time to do that. And it's only later that we think that we sort of ennoble our participation in anything, I think. Um, or make it seem larger than it was, or uh, that we had an understanding of it at the time that we really didn't. Right. And so I think that part of the problem with the World War II mythology is, as you suggested, we, we do need it. It is, I think, our one of our most flattering myths, right? And one of our most important in the sense that, and this I, I make very clear in the book, it, it I believe our participation was necessary. I believe right. the defeat of fascism was essential, that this was an existential threat. And it changed our whole role in the world. And it, the ad, I, don't, I don't diminish the advent of the post-war liberal international order, the rule of law, these things are vital, although I think they're in danger uh, right now and they have been. But these things are all crucial, but at the time, we didn't feel that way necessarily. There were some people who did, but there, we forget that there was such a strong post-World War I isolationist sentiment and that that isolationist sentiment was compounded by what was in certain quarters, chiefly the America First Committee and one of its big spokesmen, um, Charles Lindbergh, national hero, a real fascist sympathy at work. And we diminish that. We don't talk about that as much because it's harder to incorporate into the myth. Part of the myth is that after December 7th, after Pearl Harbor, everybody overnight changed, their, changed his or her mind. Uh, many people did, 
But only a few months later, the Roosevelt administration was worried that Americans had lost a sense of urgency and they weren't really focused on the war effort. And so that initial zeal seemed to diminish in certain quarters. It's also true that I think the motivation for fighting the war in the Pacific, which was certainly uh, packaged for Americans as vengeance, vengeance for Pearl Harbor, um, was clear. But now when we look back on it, we tend not to focus on the Pacific War. We instead focus on the message of American soldiers as liberators and not people seeking vengeance. And that's a huge difference. Um, so that, that has shifted our focus. Uh, we focus on the European War. Um, we also, I think, um, by focusing on, on the European war, we tend to confuse consequences with causes. So the consequence of our participation was of course, the liberation of Europe, fascist tyranny, but that was not a particularly, it, it wasn't, that wasn't a sufficient cause to get us to join the effort in the first place. Certainly there were members of the Roosevelt administration, Lend-Lease, all of these things. I mean, they, they knew which side they ought to be on, but that was not universally shared before the war. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you write about is, um, there's this old adage uh, about how we're always fighting the last war and you sort of reformulate it into, you, you, nobody wages a single war at a time or no, you can't wage one war at a time. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? It's kind of a fascinating idea. I mean, I know I've heard this a lot. It's a, it's a cliche, right? We're, you're always fighting the last war. And when you get to an organization as large as the Pentagon, the, you know, it's, it's understandable that that would be a truism, right? So this is drawn actually from the war correspondent, W.C. Hines, and he, has this amazing account. He, he has this wonderful uh, essay after the war uh, in 1950, where he uh, relays this story of crossing the Belgian border on, on September 2nd, 1944. And as he crosses the border, he tells some of the soldiers he's with that if they had gotten there, if they'd arrived nine days sooner, it would have been, as he writes, the 30th anniversary of the British retreat from Mons from the First World War. Right. One of the soldiers says, who cares? And, <laughs> and Heinz replies, nobody cares, but you don't have to get sore about it. Nobody's sore about it, the soldier replies. Just let's fight one war at a time. And Heinz says, I don't want to fight any of them. I'll give you both of them. And so when the soldier who has a completely normal reaction to that is, what are you bothering me with this for? I love Heinz's point there because of course, in this case, the war is being fought on the same ground as well, but it's the idea that we're always fighting not just sort of tactically, operationally, strategically, which is I think sometimes how, or often how this idea of fighting the last war is used, but that we always have in our minds the war that preceded. And so this becomes important, I think, for World War II, but it becomes really important for all the wars since, which as I suggest in the book, are really fought in World War II's shadow. And with often an unreasonable expectation that they will end the same way. And we seem to have retained, despite Vietnam, despite our experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, we seem to have this capacity for surprise when wars don't turn out the way World War II did. And I think part of that's set up by the vocabulary used by those who articulate the reasons why we're fighting. So right. we have comparisons often made in the first Gulf War, George Bush talked about Saddam Hussein as a Hitler. In, this, in the more recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had Rumsfeld drawing the connection once again to Hitler. You had the term Islamofascism. So this, this ability to repurpose fascism 
to suit the moment, which is something Orwell warned about a long time ago. And you have the axis, the axis of evil, which is of course a reference to the axis power. So all of this language that is this vocabulary that defined the world at a moment is now being repurposed and has been repurposed. And so I think that that way in which wars are packaged makes us think that they will turn out in this same way. And of course they have not done that. Um, and so that, that I think is the real danger or, or the real sense in which you can never fight one war at a time, that there's always something hanging over you as a nation sort of thinking about who we are, why we fight um, and why we might fight in the future. Yeah, uh, and as you say all that, it, it reminds me what you said earlier about, you know, we cast ourselves in the role of liberators. And that's mostly the reason that we adopt that same language. I'm thinking about Vietnam as, you know, we're gonna liberate them from the evil of communism. Even though uh, I like the way Max Hastings put it at the beginning of his Vietnam book, which is, yeah, this is, this is clearly a war where neither, des neither side deserves to win. <laughs> Our our alternative to their to their communism is is not something that the people of Vietnam want, but we still insist on being liberators. Um, uh, I just think that's just such a fascinating idea. Talk to me a little bit more about you. Do some great writing about movies in the, in the fifties in the Cold War period and westerns as a way of trying to make sense of our World War II experience refracted through this. Cold War, this new Cold War reality that emerges from the World War II um, dilemma. Talk to us about what films you think um, express some of the some of the problems that you see in in World War II storytelling. So in the, in the book, I focus mainly on two genres: film noir and then the western. And with film noir, of course, which really has its origins during the war, but becomes really important, I think, in the later 40s and the very early 50s. It is a really intriguing vehicle through which to tell the story of returning veterans. And so the figure of the returning veteran figures in a lot of these films. And he usually, and it's, almost always he, in fact, always he, although there are women in uniform in some of these films, but it's always focused on a man. And the, the man usually shows up in some town. Sometimes this man has amnesia and is thus sort of at the mercy of those who remember what he doesn't. Um, usually shows up often a kind of drifter, usually an, a suspicious person who can be accused of some crime that's committed. And we often find out at the end of the story that the crime was committed by the most righteous, supposedly the most righteous person in town or the most prominent, prominent city citizen in town, but the veteran's an easy target. And so there's a scene in almost all of these films where the, a policeman, a police lieutenant usually calls or a detective calls to Washington for the war record. And so you get the service record. And in the huh. service record, you often have medals for valor. Sometimes there's a silver star. That sometimes there's a, a, a purple heart that the, the to suggest that the veteran obviously has been wounded. And the service record has a kind of double edge. So on the one hand, people will say, "Well, look, this guy's a hero. He couldn't commit a crime." And then on the other hand, this guy's used to solving problems through violence. So. Maybe he is our guy. And so there's this weird sense in which that those scenes, which as I say, appear quite a bit, um, they are, they're crucial because I think they suggest a real ambivalence about who all of these returning service members really are. And they've gone off to fight in our name and then they come home. And of course the big difference between then and now is that there are so very many of them who have returned home. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the people who are at home and who have, we forget that the war brought back to work a lot of Americans who 
made more money than they had ever seen during the depression and had jobs, which they had never had before in the depression. And so these service members come back and they want their jobs back. And you know, this leads to women being pushed out of the workforce again. And there's a lot of resentment and anxiety there. And then it leads to men who have been at, at home rather than fighting. And you know, that's not to blame them. There are all sorts of reasons for that. Um, but there is all this anxiety about who's gonna come back and take my job now. And on the service members part, a lot of anxiety about what has happened while I've been gone. And, and usually this language of having been cheated of these years. And of course, there's the, the very celebrated film, The Best Years of Our Lives, which chronicles the return of three service members. And you know, it's, it's, it's this idea of the best years of our lives um, that have been sort of taken away. And so I think that it's, those films show, reveal a lot of anxiety about American culture, about, and they're not only about veterans, of course, and it's not only about the war, but the war is so often that undercurrent um, that, that informs those films. Yeah, no, I was just gonna follow up and say, you, do, you have some passages in there where you look at actually some of the author's own World War II service. But I can't remember what you, I think Ross McDonald you mentioned, but I can't remember if you bring up Raymond Chandler. Well, I'm in an electronic version, page 313. The paragraph starts, few captured the new hardness Armstrong describes more effectively than Ross McDonald in the pen name of Kenneth Miller. Lou Archer prowled California in 18 novels from the 40s to the 70s, published his first novel, still serving in the Navy. By the end of the run of Archer novels, he had earned widespread popularity and critical acclaim. Certainly and, archers, I mean, the, the idea that the, that the, the, that not only the criminal, but the detective has military service in these yes, stories, yes. I think is important. It's, it's that it shaped a whole, a whole generation, right? Um, and yeah. so, so that it, it's it, a very interesting point. I had not thought of noir as, as, you know, sort of expressing uh, uh, PTSD as sort of a, like a, a genre that is, is that's how we frame that phenomenon at the time. We didn't call it that, but that's actually an expression of that anxiety at the time. Yeah. So you were about to go on to Westerns. Yeah. So, so the Westerns, and again, this is um, just as the origins of, of, and there are some critics who are really good on this, just as the origins of film noir are in, in part kind of technological or historical in the sense that um, there were wartime restrictions and blackout restrictions during the war that kind of led to and um, and some economic uh, factors as well that led to the way in which these films were were made, the lights and shadows. Um, the The advent of widescreen technologies was a, a boon for the, this resurgence of the western, but and the westerns are are often read as Cold War allegories, right? And and the Western also is, is very elastic in that sense. And that later on that we have these Vietnam era Westerns as well. But, but I read these Westerns as sort of looking back in a sense that they, they, they do seem to be animated. I mean, High Noon's the one that always people always talk about as a, as a Cold War allegory. But I think that they, they often reflect through the Civil War a lot of kind of, they're about post-war, they're set in post-World War II, but they, they talk a lot about the Civil War. And they talk about the ways in which veterans have been cheated in some way. They emphasize this sense that life has been stolen. And in this way, they really do echo the film noir of the period, even though they're so wildly different in their, in their time, settings and their periods, um, the story is often the same. So in the Westerns, it's, it's all about cattle rustling, right? So, so either the, the Civil War soldier comes home to find that everything has been stolen away, or, and this is when it's often the Southern soldier, comes home and to a, to a, a landscape that's totally changed and decides to start stealing things back. So becomes a cattle rustler. So they go one of either one or either way. They're either on a course of, and they're often phrased as a kind of vengeance um, and getting back what was stolen. Right. And honor can be stolen. Uh, actual physical things can be stolen. And there are commentaries in some of these uh, films about the ways in which after the war, there seems to be 
no law, there seems to be a kind of unsettled feeling. Um, and so I do think that, that I, I read these also as, as indicative of this swirling anxiety about what happens when veterans come home. I want to give you a chance. I think um, you actually said that these Westerns are usually set in the post-World War II era. I think you meant to say set post-Civil War. Oh, yes, yes. I'm going to get you a chance to restate that. Sure. So, of course, the Westerns are made in the post-World War II period, but they are set often in the post-Civil War period. Excellent. Um, so now I want to do a giant shift. Um, because I heard you talk in this previous interview about you, you, uh, it's in the book too. You talk to a Russian, and and the Russian says to you, "So which which war are we talking about, right?" And in this previous interview, you you talk about well, there's the the um, the Western Front in Europe. There's the Pacific Theater, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about the Eastern Front lately, and um, especially because we have Ukraine now, and because they're arguing about history right now uh, in Russia, in the Ukraine, and that historical memory uh, conflict is very, very fraught, right? Um, and it's the way they're talking about World War II that is actually sort of driving a lot of this conflict. And so I want to start with just some, just some numbers. One of the things I, I try and think about with my journalism students is I find that they they have a real lack of context in terms of historical numbers. So I'll just outline briefly what I mean. Um, when I asked them how many American servicemen were killed in Vietnam, nobody has any idea. Um, when I asked them how many people were killed by COVID, there is kind of this rough idea, oh yeah, did we pass half a million? Is it over, is it a million? There's a rough, there's a rough sense but when I ask them how many Americans died in World War II, they have no idea. When I ask them how many Russians died in World War II, they have no idea. When I ask them how many Germans died in World War II, they have no idea. These are signposts that I think most people over four, 30 or 40, we sort of grew up with. Like they were, they were sort of like, these are hard numbers we all know, right? 57,000 plus in Vietnam. 20, now correct me if I'm wrong, some of these are ballparks, right? 20 million Russians, right? 20 million Germans. And the shaping of this memory of World War II turns very differently when you consider the amount of loss that the different powers suffered, right? So the Russians, as far as I can tell, carry a resentment about their partnership with Americans because our losses were so much less significant than theirs. And this led to them saying, we're going to get more of Europe because our losses were so much greater. We fought and killed many more Germans than you guys did. Right. And this is still a part of a defining idea of how they fought. They didn't fight a war of liberation. They fought a, a defensive war. They were invaded right? Even though they did lots of invading too. <laughs> um, so that's one thing is I want to make sure I have my numbers right. And what other numbers do you think are important to, to have in this discussion? That's the other thing. Numbers are always revised. I think of well, the, the Civil War dead and how that number has been rising and rising and rising. Sure, so, sure. so the numbers seem to be, and, and, and I also think we'll never know. I mean, so vast. Right, 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 right. That, that you have to, that, that is sort of a starting point, right? You have right. to say, these are all approximate, but right. nobody even, but even when I say to them, so do you know how many Americans were killed in 9-11? Most people don't know. Right. It's right. not something that, I find that very curious because in terms of scale, right? The number of people who die in response to 9-11, right? And even, even when you're talking about historical, I mean, on this topic in particular, I've always, my, the number I carry in my head, I might be wrong, is half a million Americans die in World War II, give or take. But we've already lost a million Americans to COVID. So COVID is actually a bigger national tragedy but we don't think of it that way at all. And we're right in the middle of it. 
And that part of that is, yeah, reality's too big. You can't take it all in at once. We, we only get perspective upon reflection. It takes time. But I don't think most Americans understand that this calamity has already cost us twice what World War II cost. Your discussion of numbers makes me think of a couple of things. It makes me think of, first, the Vietnam Wall, the memorial. Yes. Because, now, those numbers are... Even when you see that wall, those numbers are sort of beyond comprehension, but they can all fit on a wall. And so there's a, there's a, that you th start thinking about these things as, as scale. In the, in the most recent conflicts, the, 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 um, the Washington Post had the faces of the fallen feature for so many years. And this is a war in which we can, and the nightly news would do the same thing, in which we can count. And in World War II, of course, our own numbers were too big for us to do that. Civil war, too big for us to do that. But as you've suggested, those numbers are dwarfed by the unbelievable numbers of European dead. And I think that the, the great good fortune we had in that war not taking place on our own land right, on our own, we didn't see it. And, and I think the not seeing it makes us think about it in a different way. And I mean, when I say we didn't see it, of course, many people did, and, and there are, there's footage and things like that, but it didn't happen in our houses. And, and I think that the journalists, the American journalists who were in Europe covering the war before we entered are very good on this. So, uh, A.J. Liebling, the New Liebling, York yes. comes home and says, why are all the lights on? Right. I mean, you know, he's coming from a, a right. Why are there no why is there no blackout? What's going on here? Don't these people know essentially that the world is on fire? Um, uh, Ernie Pyle, when he comes back from London, comes home and he's he doesn't it's confusing. It's disorienting. It's like a different world altogether. Eric Severide, when he comes home. And he cites the song that he calls a sort of saccharine. He says, remember Pearl Harbor. And he imitates it in his, his memoir. People were singing in, in nightclubs and dancing. And he said, what is going on here? And it didn't feel, you know, that world, the world of war felt more real to these journalists than the world of peace. And, and so what does it mean to be at war and to have that war in your own country or to have it elsewhere. And I think that that's distance is a huge factor there. Um, I think it was a huge factor, certainly for the Roosevelt administration in making it real for Americans, right? We're really at war. I think that has been a challenge, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. What, what does it mean to fight in these distant countries that we really don't know much about? And unfortunately it has led us not to pay the attention we ought to pay to these conflicts. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the Russians and the idea of the great patriotic war. Um, I'm a, I, I, the novels of Vasily Grossman, I, I find really amazing. And he, he talks about the ways in which this, this sort of shock, the, 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 uh, the people immortal, which was his sort of, he took time out from covering the war to write this novel. And it, so it has a propagandist function, but it has this amazing capacity uh, to describe what happens to a, a to a country at war when when you know all peacetime activities are interrupted by this great turmoil and destruction everywhere um, and so I think that that's very that's very real um, I also think that you know as you suggest that that the that our alliance with the Soviet Union is a, another just like the Pacific this is an uneasy sort of element to the war and not as easy to fit into the myth, especially as the Cold War results, you know, after. And, and so I do think that's really difficult to, to make sense of. Um, the story, one of the stories that I tell in the book is that of the premature anti-fascists, as they were called. And they were Americans who fought in the Spanish Civil War against the fascists and recognized early on in the 30s that this was a huge threat and needed to be combated. And some of them were communists. And it was certainly true that, you know, Russia was, was uh, 
funding this and, and contributing um, to the fight, but they considered themselves anti-fascist and that was their, that, that to be labeled premature anti-fascists by the American government, by the FBI, when it came time to fight World War II, they often found themselves, they were on a list and they didn't know. And so um, they, weren't always, they weren't always allowed to fight. And it was mysterious to them. And yeah. the great uh, classicist Bernard Knox, who fought in the Spanish Civil War as a British citizen and then fought for the United States in World War II, said he learned it when he came home. And he said, well, you know, what, what would it mean to be on time to that fight, right? Like you couldn't be early enough. And so what did it mean to be a, a premature anti-fascist? And so this yeah. strange, strange political circumstance in which we found ourselves um, fighting fascists and yet ha opening dossiers on what we called premature anti-fascists. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm... I apologize. I'm, I'm laughing with you at some of the absurdity, but also there's this wonderful Eddie Azar joke you may know. If you don't, I'll send it to you. But he has a routine called, uh, oh, I can't remember, but it's it's about how the, the British are fighting and fighting and fighting. And then the Americans suddenly join up and the British say, where the hell have you been? <laughs> it's this wonderful little pantomime he does. Um, Yes, no, the communists, no, the, the hypocrisy, the and, you know, and then this giant hypocrisy punchline where we now have like Putin sponsored Trump presidential campaigns and the Republican Party. It's all of a sudden, oh, they're OK with these commies after the Soviet Union fall. I mean, the, the hypocrisy, but it's just kind of mind boggling. Um, I want to I want to switch a little bit more to the Eastern Front um, and uh, the. Uh, this idea that so what what I've been learning from Timothy Snyder's lectures at Yale about the Ukraine, are about how um, Hitler's experience is really interesting, right? He's part of the German front in the East in World War One, where the results are inconclusive, right? They don't lose, and they don't win, but because they lose in the West, there's an armistice and everybody has to come home, and he carries this resentment. And it is part of what helps create the conditions for World War II. And then in World War II, he has this term Lebensraum. And the idea of conquering the Ukraine is as a breadbasket. Um, and it's so interesting to learn history that it was a breadbasket at one time for the Greeks. I had no idea that the Greeks were that far east. Anyway, um, and that it, uh, the analogy that it was occurring to me as I, as I was learning this was that, um, Americans had their own Lebensraum. It was called Manifest Destiny, right? We're busy conquering. We're moving in the opposite direction. But we have the same idea, really, that we, you know, sort of this land is sort of, we sort of deserve this, right? Um, and so that that Eastern Front, um, again, it becomes, it, it's something that's not, it, in terms of national memory and the way that we frame the war, we're not thinking so much about that Eastern Front at all. And Snyder's contribution has been, hey, this is where so much of the killing happened. This is where so many lives were lost. This, you can't understand the Ukraine unless you understand that conflict in the East. And I'm curious how this is all, in, from my point of view, it's sort of reoriented my thinking about the war. And I've even been thinking, you know, you talk about, well, there's there's at least two different wars. There's the Western Front and the Pacific Theater. There's actually a third, kind of a third distinct war because we have elected to downplay that Eastern Front so much that it really doesn't enter our narrative nearly as much. Um, and I'm curious if that's, uh, I don't know, am I just a newcomer to this subject? I mean, I imagine if you're a World War II scholar, this this is all part of the part of what you study, but for me, it's been really eye-opening to, to start looking at the Eastern Front. Well, I, I think, so the term is just so normalized that we don't think about it, but what does a world war actually entail? And I think every, every participant, every national participant has, has just a kind of an, an imperfect, an incomplete perspective on that. And I do think that our, every, every country, you mentioned Russia, uh, 
France, England, that everyone has a kind of mythology of World War II and they look very different and they've undergone revisions and, in, and changes along the way. But I think that as Americans growing up, we didn't learn that, right? We didn't think, of, we didn't think despite the fact that it was global, there were only certain parts of the globe that we focused on. So we think about North Africa at the beginning of the war, then we think about Europe and the story ends in Berlin, I guess, right? And then in the, in the, in the Pacific theater, the story ends with the bomb. And after that, I think every country is busy cultivating its various stories. And I do think the Eastern front and the devastation on that front, and you know, you talk about numbers, those numbers are inconceivable. Um, I, think, I think it's just not as much a part of our calculation. And so even though we contributed materiel to that part of the war, as, it, as we were not engaged the way we were in other parts, I, do, I don't think it really plays a, a role. And any role it might have played was, I think, further diminished by the Cold War. So if we talk about that theater, we have to talk about our allies who are not our allies anymore. How do we do that? And it's so complicated that it kind of drops out, I think, of our version of events. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it, what occurs to me as you're talking is that we sort of, we're telling ourselves a national story, right? This is the, this is the story where our, our self-interest is manifest is in the theaters where Americans fought, right? Um, and so that would be Africa and Western Europe and the Pacific. And the Eastern, the Eastern Front is just less, yeah, it's complicated for all of those reasons. Um, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated and just so uh, jazzed that you teach literature at West Point. Um, and I imagine that there is a, there's a certain tension I don't, I don't know, but I assume there's a certain tension between the study of literature and the, um, the goals of a place like West Point where we're training soldiers um, and there's, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a certain mindset of a soldier and then there's the mindset of a literary scholar. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about if there is tension there between those two ways of thinking, of looking at the world, of I've always... As, as an English undergrad, I was always fascinated with different points of view and learning about um, the human experience through different characters and marveling at how um, ingeniously an author might might actually change my mind about a certain attitude of politics or, or that kind of thing. Like it was a very creative endeavor. I'm just curious if uh, what kinds of challenges you face as a literature, literature professor in your particular space. Well, I think from the outside looking in, it may seem wildly incompatible, the study of literature and the preparation of future military officers. I view it as essential. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, I think it's indicative of the nature of West Point and of the preparation of future officers that a college degree is part and parcel of this experience. So these are undergraduates, they are also aspiring officers. And so they, when on the same day that they get their Bachelor of Science degree, they also are commissioned as second lieutenants in the army. So it's a huge day, an overwhelming day. And those two ceremonies mark the completion of what is called a 47 month experience. And that experience involves the exercise of the mind as well as the body. And the, the mission of the military academy is to train, educate, and inspire. And so there is certainly a training component that many of my colleagues are engaged in. And training requires a different sort of response from the person being trained. And then there's an educational component in which I am involved. And it's, it's really interesting. I, I love teaching our first year cadets, the plebes as we call them, because they've been through a summer of training. Okay. They come into the classroom. And one of the hardest things is to sort of 
turn on that other part of you, right? Which is not just receive mode, but is also pushing back and, and participating. And so you watch them learn how to do that. And I think that, so, so sometimes people will say, well, if I teach some work of literature, I don't know, let's say the World War I poets, let's say Wilfred Owen and, and Siegfried Sassoon who emerged from their experience. Well, Owen sadly did not emerge from the experience but was killed right at the end of the war. But their, their war poetry is often cited as the side of sort of quintessential anti-war poetry. And I've had some people say, well, you know, how can you teach that? And I, I think, and this is, this is um, borrowing language from a, a dear friend, a, a retired officer who said, it's our responsibility to teach them the broadest range of literature possible, to show them every possible facet to war and to the cost that it entails. And so I think, and, and I've really taken that to heart. And I, I have rephrased this or thought about it in my own way, which is that they get plenty of training to teach them how to fight, technical training, ethical training as well. Um, and that's hugely important to the American military. Plenty of training on how to go to war. I think of myself as preparing them to come home. So that if you go to war and you're fortunate enough to survive it, then what do you do? Mm. And the life of the mind, all of the resources that a resilient, creative, nimble imagination give us, I don't think anyone needs that more than my students. And now I've taught there long enough that I've seen many colleagues and students go to war and the lucky ones have come home. And there's a lot to deal with. And, and I think that they find in the works they have studied, the fact that we study literature of war from thousands of years ago and from 20 minutes ago, as, as so, sort of showing them what's continue, what, what, what continuities are in that experience, what differences, what is particular about a certain war. Cause there's, you know, we talked about, you're never fighting just one war, um, but each war has a new wrinkle, a new change, be it terminology or a particular kind of engagement or a particular kind of memory. And so teaching them how to deal with all of this, I think literature offers an incredible resource for that. And so that's how I conceive of, mm. of what we're doing there and mm. how they um, begin to understand themselves and their roles in the world. The other really interesting thing to me is that well, you know this because you, you deal so much with popular culture and with music, but literature, poetry in particular is not, shall we say, central to, to American culture, the way that music is, the way that movies are. But to many other cultures of the world, those of our, of our many of our allies and many of our adversaries, it's right at the heart of things. And so when we study poetry of other cultures as well, which is hugely important. Of course, in our foreign languages uh, department, they study it in the original language, we study it in translation. But what does it mean to have a poem at the center of your culture? And they don't know that until we read it together, until we think about what that might mean and how people in other countries can, can recite scraps of poetry the way that we might our favorite lyrics or our favorite movie lines and things like that. So um, this I think is all what literature has to, to enrich them and to enrich them as, as people as well as soldiers. Because you know, one day they're gonna take that uniform off and if there's nothing, if they don't remember who they were when they started, that's a really devastating moment. Mm. Great answer, great answer to that question because we have such a horrible story going on right now. Biden brought it up in his State of the Union address, the suicide rate for veterans. It's just so, it's just so horrible to contemplate. Um, Okay, so winding down now, I, you have a great bibliography in your book, and I've, I, it's made me a great reading list. I'm curious, since the book came out, if there are other books that you'd like to mention that have come out since publication that you would put in there if you could? There are, but I'm not, I don't think I have a good answer for you right now. Okay. Yeah. Do you know a book called Achilles in Vietnam? Yes, the Jonathan Shea. Wow, what a wonderful book that is. I'm surprised that book is not more prominent. I found that book so interesting, so influ it helped me understand so much 
about the a soldier's a consciousness that I didn't understand before. I'm glad to hear that that's a well-known book among historians. Yeah, I think I think um, yeah, historians, people who study literature, I think people in, who who um, study psychology, and I think it's pretty well known in in veteran circles. Um, he also followed it up with the Odysseus in America, which talked about uh, the the homecoming question. As oh, well. interesting, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And then, do you want to just uh, circle back really quickly? Do you know Bob Dylan's Tin Pan Alley? recordings. Yes. In fact, I saw him. So this is, um, yeah. So I, he was playing in Boston. My, my, I'm from Boston and, um, this was, oh, I can't remember the year, but when he came out with the, those albums, yeah. I, I said to my parents, knowing that my dad loved these songs. I said, do you want to go hear Bob Dylan? And ordinarily, I don't think I would say to my, maybe, maybe, but you know, I said, right. this is going to sound crazy, but Dylan has these new recordings and they're yes. all for music. Yes. And so my parents and I went to hear Dylan. What is the name of the, um, what do they call it now? Downtown, the the outside. The, the, the Orpheum or, oh no, it's, no, I know it. it's a, it's an outside amphitheater. I forget what they call it, but. Whatever it is, that's where we went. And yeah. um, I, you know, he knew, again, he knew he could sing along with all of it. And so we, we really, we had a good time um, with, with that because I, I knew that he would love those songs, but yes. he would hear them in a new way. In a new way, right? I just think it's, it's. I know. I and and Dylan is so confounding. I have so many contradictory feelings about Dylan and that album. I was I was so surprised. It blew my socks off how much I love that record. Particular songs that you loved, your dad loved, that we we might use an excerpt from that he remembered the lyrics to that that hearing Dylan sing. And did he have any particular responses to Dylan? Did Dylan make new sense of these this familiar material to him? I would love to say yes, but I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think so. But so he was a great Glenn Miller uh, fan. He knew okay. uh, the, he knew someone who played in with Glenn Miller. And oh, cool! So he loved he loved Miller, um, and so yeah, I'll get I'll get a few of those. So we uh, I I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. And Glenn Miller went to University of Colorado, so we had our prom in the Glenn Miller ballroom. Oh, so that's nice! My little, <laughs> that's my little connection to Glenn Miller. Yeah. But that's very, very cool. All right, I'll let you go. Thank you. This has been so much fun. I so much appreciate your time, and I admire the book so much. I, I just think um, there's no, you know, there's it's such a big subject, and uh, as a cultural critic, you just you just had me rethinking so many really great ideas and introducing me to lots of new ideas. I so appreciate your work here. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tim. It was great. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.